0: Trails are connectors. They guide us from one place to another, but the path is rarely
1: linear. And the movement is less about the destination and more about the connections we make along the way, with the land, with each other, and with ourselves. The Appalachian
0: Trail winds 2,190 miles up the eastern spine of the United States. Though connected in 1937, the trail, the people who walk it, the animals who call it home, and the landscape it follows are ever-evolving.
1: Where We Walk is a special six-part series made in collaboration with the Appalachian Trail Conservancy with support from REI that explores the women who help make the trail what it is today. And those who will
0: help shape its future.
2: Bikers, you know, other than like stopping to, you know, take a break or camping for the night, you know, they're only on one piece of the trail for a few seconds and then they move on. Whereas that's where the wildlife lives. That's their habitat. We're only visitors there.
1: Sometimes you, you find birds and animals in the places that you least expect it or at times you least expect it. What you'll quickly notice is that there's so much to see around you, and if you're not looking for it, you may miss it.
0: I'm Laura Borshevsky, and in this episode, I'll be walking with you as we get to know a little more about the wildlife on the Appalachian Trail and the land that surrounds it. Birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, fish, and insects are part of what brings our experiences outdoors to life. It's a reminder that there's so much more out there beyond what we see and know about our environment, and it's a continual reminder as well that not only are we not alone when we're outdoors, but that as humans, we play just one part in nature's greater systems. The Appalachian Trail, winding through 14 states from Georgia to Maine, creates a unique environment home to thousands of species of wildlife. Day hikers, backpackers, naturalists, and thru-hikers alike can spot large mammals like white-tailed deer, black bears, even moose, in addition to other smaller creatures like beaver, rabbits, foxes, skunk, turtles, bats, salamanders, snakes, frogs, and so many more. That's all without even getting into birds, which you'll hear more about later on in this episode. So it's clear that wildlife on the Appalachian Trail is plentiful, which brings up one very important question. How much do you see and experience when you're outdoors, especially when you're on the move, like when you're hiking? Do you take some time to observe? Do you practice patience to discover what's around you? Or do you focus on moving from point A to point B, of reaching the summit, of covering the miles you planned for the day? In this episode, we're going to hear from two incredible human voices dedicated to better understanding and appreciating the wildlife on the AT. But we're also going to hear from many wildlife voices you might not stop to hear as often so that the next time you're outdoors, you might be encouraged to move a little slower and observe the world around you. The first person we're hearing from in this episode is Sally Naser, who's worked for 15 years in land stewardship, including a handful of years as the boundary program manager for the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, which is a program the ATC hosts in collaboration with the National Park Service. Currently, Sally works for a statewide land trust in Massachusetts to continue developing her career in land conservation. And despite her impressive background, her 9-to-5 is not actually why we called her up, at least not directly. In her spare time, Sally owns a wildlife camera service called CR Wildlife Cams, which she's been running since 2013 to unobtrusively capture stunning and insightful photos and videos of wildlife in their natural habitat. And if that sounds cool just from the quick way I summarized it, Just wait till you hear Sally talk about it and what this work means to her.
2: So what I do with my work is I deal with mainly privately owned land that's under a thing called a conservation easement. So I found an opportunity to apply for a grant with the Norcrest Wildlife Foundation to try to get some trail cameras. And my goal was to use the camera footage to try to help landowners connect more with their land because, you know, seeing a video of a bear or a picture of a bobcat is such a tangible thing to anybody. And especially a landowner, it just really turns a light bulb on of, you know, why should I care about conservation when they see that because their land is protected, that it's supporting all of this wildlife habitat.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything really special or surprising in terms of animals? Like, what have you been most excited to see through the wildlife cam so far?
2: I personally, I love, love, love getting bobcats on camera, which is really surprising to a lot of people that there are so many bobcats here in Massachusetts. I think a lot of times when people think that they saw a mountain lion, they actually saw a bobcat. You know, now that I've been doing trail cams for eight years, You know, you have the camera set up and then I see a coyote and then in the next frame I see a bobcat. So, you know, they are much bigger than people think. Always excited to see bears and definitely mother bears with cubs. And uh, who doesn't love seeing moose? So that's always exciting to have a moose. But a lot of times if I'm not prepared for moose, what I get is kneecaps. Because it's you sort of have to anticipate that I think a moose is going to come by here and then hang the camera you know six foot high.
0: <laughs> that makes sense. What's the difference between a trail camera and a camera that someone else might regularly think about?
2: Yeah, so the people use a lot of terms. Hunters tend to more use the word trail camera. I tend to try to use the word wildlife camera but it's basically the same thing. So they are triggered by motion and by heat. And you know, we, we wouldn't have these trail cameras if it weren't for hunters. I mean, I think a lot of researchers maybe had their own homemade cameras, but you know, wildlife cameras have become so incredibly popular. And for people just wanting to see what's in their backyard at night when they're asleep.
0: Definitely. No, that makes sense. Thanks for explaining that. What have you learned about wildlife from using wildlife cameras to capture these photos?
2: I've learned a lot about their behavior and just the habitat. When we first got the grant, I took a wildlife tracking class with this woman up in Vermont that runs a nonprofit called Keeping Track. And she's an amazing tracker and forester and ecologist. And one of the things she teaches in her class is the mantra of half of tracking is looking, the other half is knowing where to look. And I have definitely applied that to my cameras, you know, where I set them up. I don't think I've ever set up a camera just because I saw, you know, a pile of moose scat. I'm more reading the landscape, looking for, you know, where is their food source? Definitely where is their water source? Because we all need water a lot of what I've learned is, you know, where are the animals going to be and just how they communicate too. I mean, I've learned a ton about scent marking. You know, once you're looking for it and you're paying attention to it, you know, somebody said one day an animal scent marking, like a bobcat spraying on a log or something, that's wildlife's equivalent to updating their status on social media.
0: Yeah, it's more about understanding the context and the behaviors, and that's really specific to every type of animal in their environment. Exactly. That makes sense. What do you wish more people knew about wildlife that's on and around the AT specifically? Yeah.
2: I mean, one of the things, you know, I listen to podcasts and read a lot of books about people's adventures on the AT and it just always baffles me that a lot of hikers, you know, before they get out there have this incredible fear of bears and you know, I've been out in the woods for 15 years. The only bears I've ever seen in the woods are bears running away from me. So they are definitely a lot more afraid of us and, You know, I mean, that's not to say you won't hike down the trail and there's a bear there and, you know, maybe she's got cubs. I mean, it's basically just being aware of your surroundings. I know a lot of hikers like to hike with the AirPods on and stuff, which I get it if you're doing a thru-hike and you're out there by yourself. But, you know, just the same way that if you're hiking in Pennsylvania, you got to be aware that there could be a rattlesnake, you know, sunning itself in the middle of the trail. I think really being aware that the AT footpath is surrounded by this corridor of 250,000 acres of National Park Service acquired land. And that is their home. That's where the wildlife lives. That's their habitat. We're only visitors there, and we need to respect our surroundings when we're out there. I mean, I think the AT is an amazing, you know, iconic hiking trail, but it's more than that. It's a landscape, it's a habitat that protects wildlife and plants and and water quality and air quality. You know, I was thinking the other day that hikers, you know, other than like stopping to, you know, take a break or camping for the night, you know, they're only on one piece of the trail for a few seconds and then they move on. Whereas the wildlife, and the habitat that these AT corridor lands support. You know, we're, we're the foreigner on the AT, and uh, just to respect the habitat when you're out there.
0: As Sally mentioned, when we step onto a trail, we're truly visitors. We're going to pause here for a moment and let you take a mental journey through a rainy afternoon on the trail. You might even want to close your eyes and observe what you hear as a storm passes through. Listening to all the birds chirping and calling as the rain slowly clears is a good primer for hearing from our next interviewee, Amber Wendler. Amber is currently a second-year PhD student in the biology department at Virginia Tech, and she spent a lot of time focusing specifically on birds. With over 200 species of bird life alone on the AT, listening to Amber offers some truly meaningful insights on the creatures we might see most often while out on the trail. And Amber's passion and deeper understanding shows us just how much there truly is to appreciate about wildlife when we take the time to stop and observe.
1: The Appalachian Trail actually passes right through here in southwest Virginia. So I've explored it a bit while being here, but I'm actually originally from New York. So my first time on the AT was up there. And then for my undergrad, I was at school in Boston. And I would often find myself wanting to escape the city So I would go on weekend trips up to New Hampshire. And then most recently, this past summer, I went backpacking up in Maine and hiked up to Katahdin, which is the northern end of the AT, which was just incredible and very refreshing. So I would love to do a through hike one day, but for now, I just try to explore various parts of the AT when I get the time. Yeah, I
0: mean, just having access to any part of the AT sounds amazing, and I've heard some really beautiful things about Katahdin lately, so it's awesome that you brought that up. In terms of your current studies, what inspired you to get started in biology to begin with?
1: So I feel like for a lot of people there may be one specific moment when they realize that this is what I want to do. So that wasn't really the case for me. Uh, There wasn't just this one moment. However, Like a lot of people who are pursuing biology, I did spend a lot of time in nature growing up, but perhaps not in the same way as others. Uh, So I didn't go backpacking or camping until I was older when I was in college. And as a kid, I was living in a city. So I would connect with nature by going to zoos and museums and local parks. And so I think that's what initially sparked my interest at a young age. But I didn't realize for most of my life that I could make a career out of exploring the natural world. Uh, No one in my family was a scientist, and as a Black woman, I didn't see other people like me doing science, but I really enjoyed my science classes in high school and decided to major in biology as an undergrad, and I just fell in love with it and knew that it was the perfect fit for me.
0: I appreciate you saying that you still tried it, right, even though you hadn't had representations like in your immediate circles or in popular like media or the figures that a lot of us have been like told to look to usually don't include black women either. And I guess I'm just curious, like personally, because I think a lot of folks when they don't like fit like this societal mold are told, even if you're like good at science or math, like you're told by other people that you're not. I don't know if that's anything that you experienced or if you had a lot of encouragement as you started studying and were like, oh, I like this and I'm pretty good at it.
1: I definitely feel very fortunate to have had a supportive group. Like I said, even though no one in my family was necessarily familiar with the career I wanted to pursue, they were always very supportive of that. And I had a lot of friends and classmates that were also supportive and I was able to get some good research experiences as an undergrad. However, during my whole college experience, I didn't have one black professor, even any professors of color for any of my STEM classes. So definitely a bit discouraging at times, but I really do love being out in nature. And that's when I feel happiest and most at peace in exploring the natural world. So I'm glad that I stuck with it.
0: As Amber grew her interest in knowledge and biology, she turned a lot of her focus to the study of bird behaviors. So we are curious to know if there were specific birds she was looking to in her study and what behaviors she's been researching specifically.
1: So for my PhD research, I'll be studying birds in Puerto Rico, uh, specifically the Puerto Rican toady. So you won't find them here on the Appalachian Trail, but um, they are very cool. They're pretty small, like five to seven grams Bright green, and they have this red throat pouch. You should uh, look up a photo. They're really beautiful birds. So, I went down there last winter to scope out some field sites and collect some preliminary data, but unfortunately, my first field season had to be pushed back due to the pandemic, so I won't start any um, formal data collection until the spring. But the behavior that I will be investigating in these birds is cooperative breeding, which has been described in about 9% of bird species. Actually, there's the brown-headed nuthatch, which you may be able to see on the southern part of the Appalachian Trail, which is a cooperatively breeding bird species. So I'm sure many of you listening likely had someone other than your parents help take care of you, perhaps an older sibling or an unrelated babysitter. So this is similar to what cooperative breeding in birds looks like. It's where individuals, which we call helpers, will help care for young that are not their own. So doing tasks like feeding them. And it's often the case that the helpers are related to the young they're caring for, but not always. And cooperative breeding is among individuals of the same species. So this is different than another behavior that some of you may be familiar with called brood parasitism. So this is when birds will lay eggs in the nest of another bird species, and that species will end up raising that bird as if it were their own. So brown-headed cowbirds will actually do this, and you should be able to find those on the AT as well. And then the helpers at the nest kind of situation that I explained before is the most common form of cooperative breeding, but there's some other cool forms, like with greater awnings, in which multiple females will actually lay eggs in a single nest and all help take care of the offspring. So those you won't find up here, but just thought it was a cool example to mention.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, well, and I like that you brought it back to people too, because I think being humans, like we can relate to that really well, right? (laughs) Because that's what we know. But I think that also there's inevitably so much that we can learn and reflect on from listening to others and learning from others, whether they're other humans or other animals, and in this case, birds, which is really fascinating. And with that, I guess I'm curious to know, I know that you're still in the middle of your studies. And it sounds like you love learning about wildlife and birds. So I imagine you're always going to be learning something in this regard. But what have you learned about birds, the environment, or or even yeah, yourself or other people as a result of studying this bird behavior so far?
1: Well, I guess just broadly, studying bird behavior, you're oftentimes you know, staying in one place and making a lot of observations. And what you'll quickly notice is that there's so much to see around you. And if you're not looking for it, you may miss it. So especially with birds, I see people walking down trails all the time, and they could very easily be walking past a cool pair of birds perched up in a tree besides them. So um, I definitely want to encourage people to slow down and pay closer attention to the nature around them because there's lots of cool plants and animals to see and learn about. So I've learned definitely to pay attention to the small things in nature, and you may be (laughs) surprised what you can find. Yeah, that's
0: truly beautiful. You know, we talked a little bit about what got you into studying biology and then what birds you're studying and what behaviors, but what drew you to birds in particular? Or was that something that came to you?
1: Yeah, I've liked birds for as long as I can remember. And I think that part of that is that birds are one of those animals that you can pretty much see anywhere. You can see birds in a parking lot. You can see birds out your window. Uh, you can see them in urban environments and in rural environments. So you don't have to go very far to observe birds. So I I think that's pretty cool that it's accessible. And I I guess I'm a bit biased, but I I do think birds are the the coolest animals. (laughs) Yeah, well, and
0: just looking at your Instagram, you have so many beautiful photos, too. So like, if anybody forgets how beautiful birds are, like even birds that yeah, you might just see out your window, like, taking a look at your Instagram and seeing all the like the love that you have for birds like reflected in photos is really really obvious and I think would inspire anyone to seek out
1: more birds in their everyday life (laughs) thanks I appreciate that
0: yeah what do you wish more people knew about birds on and off the AT or or wildlife in general if you feel like it's applicable to more than just birds
1: I definitely wish that everyone would give wildlife the respect that they deserve. So that means giving them an appropriate amount of space, not feeding them, making sure you're staying on the trails so that you're not damaging their habitat. And also related to that, respecting other people who are on the trails with you observing the wildlife. And this is especially important for helping to make people of color, like myself, feel welcomed and like we belong in the outdoors, so making sure to respect wildlife and also respecting the people that are observing it.
0: When Amber's not on a research project, you can still find her enjoying the AT, as a birdwatcher and as a recreationalist, which she knows from personal experience goes perfectly hand-in-hand if you're being intentional about it.
1: I definitely do a good amount of birdwatching. But I also really enjoy hiking and backpacking. And I feel like all those things can be done at the same time. And I've gotten really into nature photography within the past year or so. I really like photographing birds and other animals. So I do like observing other animals too that aren't birds. Like I've seen black bears, I've seen moose, squirrels are cool too, <laughs> chipmunks, toads, all sorts of things. So I definitely keep an eye out for other animals as well. Yeah. Can I ask you
0: what your secret is to getting such beautiful wildlife photos?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think I hinted to it before. It's just being patient. So walking slowly, listening, looking up and looking around and maybe just stopping in one place for a bit and um, taking it all in. So yeah, I definitely have learned to be a bit more patient as I've gotten into bird watching more over the years. Sometimes you you find birds and animals in the places that you least expect it, or at times you least expect it. Sometimes I'll go out early in the morning as the sun is rising looking for birds and not really see much. And then I'll just be coming out of my car at midday and see some cool birds in like a parking lot. So just um, always keeping an eye open.
0: And if you're looking for more resources about getting started in birding, Amber's got you covered.
1: There are some good resources such as eBird, so you can go on the website on a computer or you can download the Merlin Bird ID app or the Audubon app. And you can use this to help you identify birds also iNaturalist is a really good resource for identifying not only birds but plants and other animals that you may encounter on the AT and it could seem overwhelming at first because there's so many different species but i would say just focus on the 10 or 20 most common species and try to learn those and before you know it you'll you'll be uh, able to identify them as if it was your friend walking down the trail (laughs) or flying down the trail Yeah, or flying down the trail.
0: (laughs) By now, your ears are hopefully tuned for the wildlife sounds of the Appalachian Trail. So let's take one more listen together when you stop at camp for the night. And as you look up through the trees and admire a few constellations, you take in the wildlife surrounding you. If this episode inspired you in any way to take better care of the wildlife nearest to you, the ATC is encouraging us to take one action that could improve wildlife habitats in our own backyards or communities. This could mean identifying and removing invasive species at home or in our neighborhood, or it might look like researching native plants in the area and plant something that supports native pollinator species, be it in a garden or a small window box. It could also look like volunteering at a local park through restoration programs nearby. Thank you to Sally Nazer and Amber Wendler for contributing to this episode of Where We Walk, Stories of the Appalachian Trail, made in collaboration with the Appalachian Trail Conservancy with support from REI. If you want to learn more about these women featured today, their handles and websites are listed in the show notes and via the episode landing page on she-explores.com. This was part five of six of the Where We Walk mini series. Tune in next Monday for our final episode of this miniseries, and in the meantime, a new episode of She Explores is available on Wednesday. This episode was hosted by Laura Borshevsky with Gail Straub. Where We Walk is a She Explores miniseries and a production of Ravel Media.